Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about how society is falling apart and about how to put it back together again. I'm your host, Christopher Wong, and today, and for the next few days, we're doing something a bit different. We're going to take a deep dive into some of the people who got us into the mess we're in today. Now, when we've talked about our enemies and it could happen here, we've mostly focused on fascism, and for good reason. But for the next few days, we're focusing on a different enemy. Though, don't worry, the Nazis will show up. That enemy is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is the single most successful political movement of the 20th and 21st centuries. No other political movement in human history has directly controlled so much of the globe. It has outmaneuvered, outlasted, or simply destroyed every ideology that sought to oppose it, and has reigned virtually unchallenged for 50 years after it exploded onto the political scene in Chile. Their victory has been so total that even their erstwhile opponents have adopted its core principles. Margaret Thatcher famously bragged that her proudest accomplishment was creating Tony Blair, basking in the irony that neoliberalism would be implemented across the globe in large part by labor and socialist parties. Today, even erstwhile communist countries maintain so-called special economic zones, with the laws of neoliberalism are allowed to run rampant in exchange for GDP increases, 
and their communist supporters in the West have come to believe that capitalism is a far more powerful engine of economic development than the state planning advocated by their forebearers, thus internalizing the greatest principle of neoliberalism even as they claim to oppose it. All of this, of course, raises two questions. What actually is neoliberalism, and how did it come to rule the world? Today, we're going to try to answer the first question by looking back at the original neoliberals and examining what they believed, because it's not what you think. There are many places you can begin the story of neoliberalism. I'm choosing to start in France in 1938. Now, the 1930s are a bad time to be a free trade market liberal. And just to clear this up early, liberal in the European context, which is where a lot of the beginning of the story takes place, does not mean the same thing as it does in the American context. European liberalism up to this point is about free trade, markets, individual liberty and rights, etc., etc., but it's anti-state interference. To be somewhat reductive, it's kind of closer to what conservatism is in the U.S., but it's not identical, so bear that in mind as the story goes on. Dirty saw the rise of fascism, social democracy, and communism, each with its own form of government spending and economic planning, which liberals absolutely detested. Now, the 1920s and 30s have been full of liberals gathering to try to figure out what to do next. And in 1937, Walter Lippmann, an American writer who would become most famous for inventing the term Cold War, wrote a book called An Inquiry into the Principles of the Good Society, which argued that totalitarianism was a product of not having individual private property and that the state needed to be limited to administering justice and not, you know, giving people things that they need. And so a lot of liberals read this and go, oh, cool, we should organize a conference to talk about this book and our ideas. And the product is a 1938 Lippmann Colloquium. Now, a bunch of extremely important neoliberals show up at this conference, including one Friedrich August von Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, Wilhelm Röpke, and Alexander Rousteau. And they start talking about the need for a new kind of liberalism to oppose communism, Keynesianism, fascism, and what they call Manchester laissez-faire liberalism, in which the state didn't intervene at all in political life and let the economy run on autopilot. Now, the German sociologist Alexander Rousteau, who we're going to talk about more in a second, comes up with the term neoliberalism to define the new set of principles that they're trying to develop, and they think the new liberalism should prioritize the price mechanism, free enterprise, the system of competition, and importantly, a strong and impartial state. Now, this is the origin of neoliberalism as a term. And it's important to understand two things from the outset, because the neoliberals are going to spend the next 50 years lying about this. One, neoliberalism favors a strong state to make the market work. And two, neoliberalism is not the same thing as classical liberalism. Now, neoliberals essentially invented the whole I'm a classical liberal thing in the 50s. But if you read the original stuff that they wrote, if you, if you go back to 1940s, if you go back to 1930s, and you read what they write, the neoliberals are extremely clear that they are not classical liberals, and that, in fact, their political project is different from the 20th century and 19th century liberal project, in which the state is supposed to be a night watchman and not actually interfere in the markets at all. The neoliberals originally, before they you know start lying about their actual origins, reject this principle and come to believe that, in fact, a strong state is necessary to ensure that markets work. So now you have neoliberalism as a thing, but nothing really happens much until after World War II, because during World War II, almost everyone is just doing state economic planning. And so, you know, all of these people rambling off to the side about how, oh, the, the market is the most efficient way to plan a system. 
nobody listens to them because they're fighting a war and the way you fight wars is doing state planning. And after World War II, the situation for neoliberals is even worse because having, you know, gone through the experience of entire societies turning their entire economies and systems into planning agencies in order to, you know, mobilize a total war effort, people after the war come back and go, oh, hey, we can do this to other parts of the economy. So this means that everyone, and this is not just the communist states, this is, you know, this is Britain is doing Keynesianism, they're doing planning, they're doing state uh, welfare programs, and the New Deal is spreading also across the globe. Now, in response to all of this, Hayek and his allies do two things. The first is found the Chicago School of Economics. And the second is to assemble the Avengers of Taking Food from Children, the Montpellier Society. The Montpellier Society is the central neoliberal institution, which is a weird thing because in a lot of ways, it's essentially just a closeted debate society intended to allow neoliberals to work out their political principles behind closed doors. Now, at this first meeting in 1947, a lot of the people from the Littman Colloquium are there, but unfortunately, some of the French members of the colloquium and some of the people from Germany had uh, collaborated with the Nazis, so they were out. And this meant that Hayek had to find new people to bring in. And the Montpellier Society's first meeting is the first time you actually have all three major schools of neoliberal thought in the same place at the same time arguing with each other. And they can't agree on shit. The only thing they can actually agree on is to look into more stuff. And to, to get a sense of how far away from modern neoliberalism the arguments that are being had at the Montpellier Society are... The Montpellier Society has only ever once actually released a single statement stating its principles. And this statement was the only thing that could be agreed on at the first meeting of the Montpellier Society, and I'm just going to read it. This is what they agreed to research. One, the analysis and explanation of the present crisis so as to reflect its essential moral and economic origins. Two, the redefinition of the state's functions so as to distinguish more clearly between the totalitarian and liberal order. 3. Methods of re-establishing the rule of law and assuring its development so that individuals and groups are not in a position to encroach upon the freedom of others and private property rights are not allowed to become a basis of predatory power. 4. The possibility of establishing minimum standards by means not inimical to initiative and the functioning of the market. 5. Methods of combating the misuse of history for the furtherance of creeds hostile to liberty. 6. The problem of creating an international order conductive to safeguarding of peace and liberty and permitting the establishment of harmonious international economic relations. You know, just by looking at this, you, you can immediately see signs of how far things are going to move. I mean, you know, what, one, of, one of the things that they're talking about is, again, they're, they're trying to research whether or not it's possible to just give people things without the market. And it's, it's, it's not just the sort of left, quote unquote, wing of the neoliberals who are arguing about this. Hayek, in, in probably his most famous book, The Road to Serfdom, I mean, explicitly says, yeah, you should just give people food and housing and stuff outside of the market. And, you know, to, like today, if literally anyone who says this will be accused of socialism, this is the neoliberal, this is, you know, a large part of the neoliberal position in, in 1947. Now, I've mentioned briefly that there are three schools of neoliberalism. And we're going to spend some time looking at them because people have a tendency to look at neoliberalism and assume that, oh, it's, it's, it's just the Chicago School of Economics. 
you know, which is the, the neoclassical school's most famous member is Milton Friedman. And it's true that, that Chicago school are neoliberals. But, and, and this is critical, there's other intellectual schools involved in here. And it's not just it's not just economists. Neoliberalism from the beginning is a multidisciplinary international project. You have lawyers, you have political scientists, you have journalists, you have philosophers, you have anthropologists. And the product of this is something, is an ideology and a philosophy that is much deeper, much richer, and much more dangerous than just Chicago school alone. The second of the major schools is the Austrian school, which is led by Ludwig von Mises and Hayek. And Maybe most importantly, but least well-known, the third school that we're actually going to be talking about today is the German Ordo Liberals, led by Alexander Rousteau, who, again, invented determinate liberalism, and Wilhelm Röpke, who almost no one has ever heard of, but are incredibly important. And I'm going I'm to insert a disclaimer here before I get yelled at by, by nerds. Yes, I'm aware of the public choice theorists at the Virginia School. I am also aware that a group of the neoliberals is called the Geneva School, even though they're just regular Ordo Liberals. And there's also the rump of the neo-institutionalists. Um, I don't care about them because they're not <laughs> relevant to this story. Please do not yell at me on Twitter. Now, these people have wildly divergent beliefs. And so I'm going to do my best to do one-sentence summaries <laughs> of what these people believe. So the Chicago School of Neoclassical Economics. Humans are all-knowing, calculating gods, rationally optimizing their behavior to get the most out of every single hu- interaction they engage in to maximize the utility, the product of this infinite freedom to choose economic equilibrium. The Austrian school. Humans are pig-ignorant fucks who know literally nothing and therefore must be made to bow down to the ever-changing disequilibrium of the market, which is the only thing that can actually process information. Order liberalism. The markets won't create or balance itself because these uncultured proletarian swine keep asking for raises instead of focusing on the magic of the family, so we have to use the state and laws to force people and companies to do competition. And these are obviously somewhat comical summaries of it, but these are very, very different conceptions of what it is to be a human, of whether the market occurs naturally or not, of what the market actually is is it a product is, is is it an object in and of itself is it a product is it just an inevitable product of humans doing whatever humans do and this is part of the reason why it's it was almost impossible to get the original neoliberals to agree on anything but this is actually one of the strengths of the neoliberal project the project only works because it uses the products of all three branches you have neoclassical attacks on the welfare state austrian attacks on central planning and order liberal theories of the state and sort of cultural and the non-economic nature of markets. And, you know, when one school essentially fails as an explanation for something, they can jump to another school. And this gives them a very wide range of ability to move between crises and move between people attacking any of the individual schools because they can simply pull out another set of theories. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit tomboyx.com. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about each of the schools. And we're going to start with the Chicago School because, again, it's the most famous and because I, uh, I think there's, a, there's another very interesting story here into how the Chicago School changed from its origins. So one of the people who was supposed to be a founding member of the Chicago School was a man named Henry Simmons. And Simmons is unlike the rest of the Chicago School because he actually believes in things. So I'm, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from him. Thus, the great enemy of democracy is monopoly in all its forms. Gigantic corporate trade associations and other agencies for price control, trade unions, or in general, organization and concentration of power within functional classes. Here's another one. 
A monopolist is an implicit thief because his possession of market power leads to the exchange of commodities at prices that do not reflect underlying social scarcities. And, you know, you, you can see this sort of one of one of the classic neoliberal arguments, which is that, okay, so you have, you, you have the market, the market is efficient, and trade unions get in the way of the market because they're a monopoly. But Simmons has what kind of looks like, a, a, from, from our perspective, a left-wing critique of, of monopolies, which is, yeah, okay, giant corporate monopolies are thieves because they, they, they use their market power to, to rob people by charging higher prices. And it, it's it's... I genuinely can't say how differently things would have gone if Simmons had actually been around to see the Chicago's go through because he commits suicide in 1946. And unlike every single other person who was going to be involved with the Chicago school from the beginning until now, Simmons had a genuine commitment to democracy and anti-monopoly principles. But unfortunately, he dies in 1946, and by the, by the Chicago school is really up and running in the 50s, Almost everyone involved in it is overtly pro-monopoly, pro-corporation, and are, you know, they, they set up an antitrust school, but the thing that the antitrust school is arguing is that monopolies are actually essentially impossible because competition will just take care of everything, and if you try to stop monopolies from happening, it will interfere in the economy. Now, this is, this is the line that Milton Friedman takes, and it's also the line of the Volcker Fund, who are a sort of... I guess you could call them a charitable organization, but it's basically a, a, a billionaire slush fund that funds the school. And they'd had real fights with Simmons because Simmons is like, well, okay, monopolies are bad. And Volcker is like, well, we're a monopoly. So you guys need to actually work for us. And by the time Friedman essentially takes over the Chicago school and uh, Knight take it over, they're not just intellectual mercenaries. They're extremely proud of the fact that they are, in fact, pure intellectual mercenary hacks with absolutely dogshit economics. If, if you've ever read just a, or, you know, if you've ever been forced to take an economics class, you took microeconomics, that's basically just what the Chicago School believes. It's everyone's a rational actor. Every, every human being spends all of their time trying to calculate the maximum utility of anything that they do. Everything is a market. Everything functions by supply and demand. Markets are perfectly efficient if you just let them alone and don't interfere with them. Uh, everything the state does interferes with the markets, et cetera, et cetera. This is, this is the thing that is sort of classically understood to be neoliberalism's core content. But it's extremely important to understand that these are not the only neoliberals. And in fact, not only are these not the only neoliberals, this set of political principles, to a large extent, is not what the neoliberals actually believe. This kind of stuff is essentially what they feed the rubes. Small states, Taxes bad, regulation bad. Everything is a market and has always been a market, and all human interactions will inevitably produce markets. But to understand what neoliberals actually believe, we need to talk about the order liberals. Now, the, the two most important order liberals are Wilhelm Röpke and W. W. Rousteau, who were both exiles during the Nazi regime. Now, a lot of the other order liberals who uh, stayed in Nazi Germany collaborated with the Nazi regime, which is something that's kind of just overlooked and brushed to the side when people write about them. But Ropke and Rousseau's status as people who, you know, fled the Nazis gives them a kind of social cachet that their colleagues don't have, and they become extremely important. Now, in some ways, the order liberals could be considered the left wing of, of the neoliberals. They are significantly less harsh on the welfare state than other forms of neoliberalism. And this is in large part because the order liberals are the first neoliberals to ever actually hold any power. 
And I, I think people, most people tend to think that the first time neoliberalism was ever implemented was Chile, but that's not really true. The order liberals are actually very powerful in, in 1950s Germany. Now, the problem they face is that the left is powerful enough in 1950s Germany that they cannot actually just completely eliminate the welfare state. So their solution is to create this thing called the social market. And the order liberals get accused of like being crypto socialists by a lot of the other neoliberals, but that's not really what's going on. The very important thing about the order liberals is that unlike the Chicago school, they're not economists. Both Ropke and Rousseau are social scientists. Rousseau's a, a sociologist. And they argue that the state and the market alone cannot maintain market society because market society produces dislocation. You know, it produces atomization. It destroys social cohesion. And this means that you need a social, political, and sort of cultural framework to maintain it. And their major focus is on providing stability and security for the working class and a new sense of sort of identity and cultural cohesion. Because I think if the working class is essentially left to itself, it will create massification, cultural decay, and eventually the working class will turn into the proletariat, and that will give you either, either communism or fascism. The order liberals believe that there's, there's, there's a kind of natural hierarchical order that they're trying to preserve. That This is essentially what ordo means. It means literally order, which accords with the essence of humans. This means an order in which proportion, measure, and balance exist. Now, they have a few ways that they're going to do this. Ropke is obsessed with something called structural policy. And stru structural policy is basically the argument that the conditions for markets have to be specifically created. And again, they're not just economic positions, they're social conditions. And th this is fused with Rousteau's vital politique, which is essentially about the, the, the power of anthropological and human aspects of culture and politics that are beyond the forces of production that they think are vital to sort of the functioning of society. And part of what they're doing here is that they want to give some people a cultural thing to focus on, so they stop talking about like wages and welfare and who owns production. But the combination of, of vital politique and structural policy gets you order liberalism. So nominally, they focus on individuals, but really what they're focusing on as the family, as this quote-unquote decentralized engine of economic capitalism, with small businesses and hopefully small family farms as a sort of apolitical social support base for capitalism, which they're, they're, they're going to promote and set against the radicalism of the sort of industrial proletariat. And th this, this sort of middle class that they're aspiring to build is extremely important for a number of reasons, partially as a way to diffuse working class tension, partially as a way to sort of offers workers something to aspire to, and partly as a way to fuse the sort of traditional natural hierarchy with conceptions of meritocracy. Now, Ropke in particular also begins to look for systems outside of just the democratic state to sort of create this legal apparatus that the neoliberals want to use to impose markets. And this is extremely important because a lot of where neoliberalism winds up coming from is not from national governments, it's from this sort of international bureaucracy. It's from the IMF, it's from the World Bank, it's from the World Trade Organization. And those groups are controlled by, by neoliberal lawyers. And Robke is the person who essentially first has this idea. Now, the goal of using these international legal institutions as a way of creating law, the laws to sort of enforce neoliberalism is using it as a way to sort of get around democracy. And I'm going to read this quote from Roque because, oh boy, does he absolutely not believe in freedom and democracy in the way that uh, 
he and everyone else talks about publicly. It is possible that in my opinion of the strong state, I am even more fascist, fascistier, than you yourself, because I would indeed like to see all economic policy decisions concentrated in the hand of a fully independent and vigorous state weakened by no pluralist authorities of a corporatist kind. I see the strength of the state in the intensity, not extensiveness, of its economic policies. How the constitutional legal structure of such a state should be designed is a question in and of itself for which I have no patent receipt to offer. I share your opinion that the old formulas of parliamentary democracy have proven themselves useless. People must get used to the fact that there is also a presidential, authoritarian, even, yes, horrible thing to say, dictatorial democracy. So what he's saying there is that he's, 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 he's sending a letter to one of his friends and he's going, yeah, I'm, I'm even more fascist than you are. I think that democracy is actually a threat to the market and that in order to avoid authoritarian democracy, we should, in fact, concentrate all economic decision-making power in, a, in, in the hands of a narrow elite in a strong state, which is, you know, the opposite of everything that neoliberals openly claim to be supporting. But behind closed doors, and we will get into more of this in a second, this is what they actually believe. Now, Robke is somewhat unique among neoliberals in that he is racist by neoliberal standards. He's just enormously incredibly racist so for example he's he's a a massive apartheid dude and again i want to, I, I need to point this out roque is one of the thing is one of the most important neoliberals he's one of the founding members of the montpelion society although he gets kicked out for well he, he eventually leaves because of some uh, disputes he has with hayek but you know I, I'm, just, I'm gonna read some of the things that he says about south africa because they're horrible quote the South African Negro is not only a man of an utterly different race, but at the same time stems from a completely different type and level of civilization. He also calls ending apartheid, quote, national suicide. And, you know, so he starts saying this stuff. And the other neoliberals are like, dude, what the fuck? So the neoliberal he news newspaper, like he wrote for for 30 years, was just like, what? And published a bunch of students going, stop this. This is, you, you cannot seriously be supporting apartheid like this. And his response, and the newspaper is called the NZZ, and his response is, quote, these NZZ intellectuals will not be satisfied until they let a real cannibal speak. Now, Ropke is one of his uh, friends, another MPS member named Hunold. So Hayek looks at Ropke's support for apartheid and is like, what the fuck? Like, no, absolutely not. Like, this is horrible. Why, why are you doing this? You know, to, to, to Hayek's credit, that this, this is the extent of the credit I will give Hayek in this episode is that he looks at just the, the open overt racism of Ropke and is like, no. And when, when he does this, uh, Ropke's friend, Hunold, says that Hayek, quote, now advocates one man, one vote in race mixing. Now, you can see a lot of things here about Ropke that are extremely scary. And one of those things is that the, the, the language that he's speaking, this, uh, uh, the West is committing national suicide, uh, the clash of civilizations, race war stuff. You know, this is this is essentially the the, the I mean, the, literally the national suicide thing is what white nationalists say today. And Robke is, in a lot of ways, a white nationalist. He's just sort of a German one. But what's what's really scary about Robke is that he's not sort of bound by by the sort of strictures of, of, of a neoclassical neoclassical economist. So for example, he won't propose that like the dating market, like like dating should be a market and that rich like men should be able to like 
I, I go on an app and like like every 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 single time a person gets into a relationship, it should just be entirely based on market exchange and stuff like that. Because you know he doesn't think like an economist; he thinks about cultural factors. He thinks about sort of social factors. But he also he's cracked the code for how neoliberalism is going to be implemented. The, the way you do neoliberalism is neoliberalism plus racism. And he realizes that you you need a you know neoliberalism's actual sort of policies right will cause atomization, will cause social dislocation, will cause the the existing social structures of society sort of implode. And he realizes that in order to get this to work, you need you need a spiritual base. You need some kind of new thing that you can use to to to, to sort of bring all these people together. And he picks Catholicism. Which doesn't work because, I mean, there's a number of reasons for this, but you know, partially it's too early, partially it's because he picks Catholicism and not evangelicalism. But this is how the neoliberals are eventually going to take power by you know aligning themselves with the evangelicals who promise to solve the atomization they're creating with you know religion and family and the patriarchy. And he figures this out in like the '60s, but it was just you know like 20 years before the rest of the neoliberals figured it out. Now, there's the, uh, he also, Rupke has like a bunch of very similar stuff that he thinks about this, about Rhodesia. But interestingly, he has more support for his positions on Rhodesia than he does for his positions on South Africa. And now I'm going to, uh, we're, we're going to jump back to Chicago school. And we're going to read some Milton Friedman stuff about Rhodesia because, dear God, quote, majority rule for Rhodesia today is a euphemism for a black minority government which would almost surely mean both the eviction or exodus of most of the whites and also a drastically lower living level and opportunity for the black masses of Rhodesia. Uh, here's another one where he's describing the system of one person, one vote, quote, a system of highly weighted voting in which special interests have far greater role to play than does the general interest. You know, so that's his description of what democracy is. Uh, in contrast, he thinks the market economy is, quote, a system of effective proportional representation. Now, Friedman also thinks that, you know, so, so there, there's, there's a blockade, like an economic blockade of Rhodesia going on because they're Rhodesia and they are maybe the worst people ever. That's probably it might, only, only a mild exaggeration. Yeah, it's just, you know, absolutely fanatical, like, white supremacist government. And Friedman also calls the isolation of Rhodesia, quote, the suicide of the West. And, you know, he's doing this on racial lines, but he's also doing this along the lines of this, this argument that democracy itself is actually bad. And this is the place that he can express it because, you know, he can leverage racism to get away with it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to read another Friedman quote because... I think it's it's important to understand what the neoliberals actually think about democracy. Quote, This was sometimes admitted by members of Mount Pelion in public, but only when they felt that their program was in the ascent. Let's be clear. I don't believe in democracy in one sense. You don't believe in democracy. Nobody believes in democracy. You will find it hard to find anybody who will say that if democracy is interpreted as majority rule. You will find it hard to find anybody who will say that 55% of the people believe the other 45% of the people should be shot. That's an appropriate exercise of democracy. What I believe is not a democracy, but an individual freedom in a society in which individuals cooperate with one another. So, 
he's he's making a sort of what's in some ways a kind of anarchist argument against democracy, which is that like yeah okay so if if you interpret democracy as pre majority rule, then a majority can just do a terrible thing to the minority, but. You know, what the neoliberals actually mean by this is that uh, 55% of the population could, for example, I don't know, take money from the rich small part of the of the population and distribute it around, and they think that is totalitarianism. And in order to stop that from happening, they are, in fact, absolutely and perfectly willing to just back dictatorships. And, and you know, that's, in, in essence, what they, what, they, what they actually want is a state the sole function of which essentially is to ensure that nobody ever does this. And you know, if if you can do this inside of a democratic framework, fine. But if you can't, well, I don't know. It's time for a coup. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. 
I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. We're going to turn to the to Hayek and the Austrians, because Hayek also is known as the sort of like as a libertarian, as this person who sort of believes in spontaneous order and like thinks that uh, uh, you, should, you should only have sort of small decentralized political institutions. Uh, and so we're going to watch Hayek quote a bunch of stuff from and agree with a bunch of stuff from Carl Schmidt, which is again incredible because Hayek elsewhere describes Schmidt as quote, uh, the Nazis chief jurist, which is true but here here are some other things that hayek has said about Karl schmidt quote the weakness of the government of an omnipotent democracy was very clearly seen by the extraordinary german student of politics Karl schmidt who in the 1920s probably understood the character of the developing form of government better than most people and you know hayek believes a lot of the same things that schmidt does so you know one of them the things that schmidt is like big on is that liberalism and democracy are opposite things and hayek also believes this and okay, so so I'm I'm gonna read I'm gonna read some Schmidt and then I'm gonna read some Hayek and they're gonna be saying the same thing. So here's Schmidt: only a strong state can preserve and enhance a free market. Only a strong state can gener- generate genuine decentralization and bring about free and autonomous domains. Here's Hayek: if we proceed on the assumption that only the exercises of freedom at the majority will are important, we would be certain to create a stagnant society with all the characteristics of unfreedom. So what Hayek, what Hayek yeah, Schmidt is saying that only a strong state can, can support a free market and do decentralization. Hayek is saying if you let a democracy exist uh, that has majority rule, uh, it will create unfreedom. Now, we, we will get into this more when we talk about like Chile because, oh boy, is there some other shit that Hayek has to do with that. But most neoliberals hate democracy no matter what they say in public. And and this is the other important thing here. Neoliberals lie. They lie constantly. They lie to the point where sorting out their actual beliefs becomes almost impossible, and even their intellectual enemies believe the lies that they tell. What most people think the neoliberals believe is that, you know, they want a small government and liberty in an unregulated market that will occur naturally through spontaneous order because it's human nature to want to truck and barter and rationally calculate things. And the neoliberals don't believe any of this. This is just what they tell to the rubes. What, what they actually want is a large and powerful surveillance and legal state and a massive bureaucracy to enforce essentially pro-corporate policies at gunpoint. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read, close out this episode by, by reading a, a list of things that Philip Murawski, who's an economic historian who studies neoliberalism, whose work I've used a lot uh, for, for these episodes, wrote about the, the 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 sort of the, the sort of eleven principles of what neoliberals actually believe. One, free markets do not occur naturally. They must be actively constructed through political organizing. Two, the market is an information processor and the most efficient one possible, more efficient than any government or any single human being could be. Truth can only be validated by the market. Three, market society is and therefore should be the natural and inexorable state of humankind. 
The political goal of neoliberals is not to destroy the state, but to take control of it and to redefine its structure and function in order to create and maintain the market-friendly culture. 5. There is no contradiction between public politics citizen and private market entrepreneur consumer, because the latter does and should eclipse the former. 6. The most important virtue, more important than justice or anything else, is freedom, defined negatively as freedom to choose, most importantly, defined as the freedom to acquiesce to the imperatives of the market. 7. Capital has a natural right to flow freely across national borders. 8. Inequality of resources, income, wealth, and even political rights is a good thing. It promotes productivity because people envy the rich and emulate them. People who complain about inequality are either sore looters or old foggies who need to get hip to the way things work nowadays. 9. Corporations can do no wrong. By definition, competition will take care of all problems, including any tendency monopoly. 10. The market, engineered and promoted by neoliberal experts, can always provide a solution to the problems seemingly endlessly caused by the market in the first place. There's always an app for that. 11. There's no difference between is and should be. Free markets both should be, normatively, and are, positively, the most efficient economic system, and the most just way of doing politics, and the most empirically true description of human behavior, and the most ethical and moral way to live, which in turn explains, justifies, and justifies why there are versions of free markets should be and, as neoliberals build more and more power, increasingly are universal. Yeah, we've read a long list of things. But essentially the point of this is that neoliberals want to transform everything into the market because they think the market is a more efficient way of doing things and a better and more moral and more just way of doing things than anything else you could possibly imagine, including, you know, things like democracy. And, you know, and any problem the system like produces will be solved by the system. Now, th this, is, this is an incredibly radical political program in a lot of ways in that it, well... You know, you, you can you can you can argue whether it's a radical or reactionary program. I mean, I think I think it's a it's a deeply reactionary one in some ways, but it is a is a program that is vastly different than anything else that has come before it. Now, the challenge, of course, was getting anyone else to agree to this, and the answer is that it's really hard to. It is extremely hard to convince people that you know everyone should bow down to the market, et cetera, et cetera. And so the 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 only way they can actually do this is by lying. Now. As, as Murawski describes, the neoliberals operate an incredibly sophisticated intellectual and political network that forms a sort of Matryoshka doll with Mont Pelerin society at its center and an ever-expanding group of more and less specialized think tanks, the shell layers. So in this way, they, they, they mirror the vanguard structure and sort of front group networks of their communist opponents, but they have significantly better financial backing. And this means that, you know, they can run the American Enterprise Institute and, uh, you know, with, with, with copious amounts of Coke money. They can run this entire enormous network of think tanks that allow them to sort of act as a government in waiting. And the other thing that they're going to attempt to do is take over the global regulatory bureaucracy, the IMF, the World Bank, eventually the World Trade Organizations, and force people to do this at gunpoint by using those organizations. Now, all they needed was a crisis that they could use to implement their policies. And next week... We're going to look at the crisis that gave them exactly what they wanted. This has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, find us on Instagram and on Twitter at Happen Here Pod. Uh, find the rest of our stuff at Cool Zone. And goodbye. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.